0: Welcome to Pizina Perspectives, brought to you by Pizina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Today's episode features Portfolio Manager Allison Fish and Co-Chief Investment Officer John Getz discussing their mid-year outlook on value.
1: I'm Valerie Arnold, co-head of North American Distribution at Pizina Investment Management. I wanna introduce you to my colleagues with me today. We are here with one of our senior portfolio managers, Allison Fish, and our co-CIO, John Getz. This is our opportunity to provide you with an update on the opportunities we are seeing in value investing. Uh, John, we just completed one of the most volatile six months ever, probably one of the worst periods ever, for both equities and fixed income. So how are you feeling at this point?
2: Well, <laughs> you separate the the feelings from from the facts. That's what I try to do with 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 this job. Uh certainly there's a lot to worry about, Valerie, to your point. Uh if I just back up the clock just a little bit. We went into 2022 with some big worries. Uh we still had COVID lockdowns, particularly in in China. So the COVID after effects are still there. We had big supply chain. Uh, disruptions hurting a lot of businesses trying to move goods uh, around the world we had high oil prices already coming into the year uh, and inflation fears which triggered uh, interest rate fears so if you think about it coming into 2022 there was a lot of fear uh in the market uh i would say more outside the united states because the united states had more you know recovery post-COVID recovery than than the rest of the world but then Russia invaded Ukraine, oil prices went crazy, and then the recession word started running around. So really, I would say we transitioned from kind of a a weak COVID recovery globally with some knock-on effects that were causing real trouble to businesses and earnings. uh, And then we hit the Ukraine situation. And in Europe, uh, actually, we just finished a a bunch of visits with European companies uh, last month. And I would say almost to a tee, uh, they're kind of assuming we're in recession in Europe. And, and you saw the European stocks drop 20, 30, some of them 40% uh, earlier in the year uh, before the United States really started its skid. Uh, so I would say recession has come to dominate uh, the, the global fear uh, matrix, if you will. A lot to worry about. now. The the truth is for us in our stock selection and how we go at investing, fear creates opportunity, right? There's no such thing as a cheap stock that everyone's in love with. Uh, And that's how our screening tool works. We screen for uh, good valuation opportunities. So there's always always a problem and there are a lot of problems uh, in the world today. So that fear can translate to opportunity. Now, just speaking of the Ukraine invasion by Russia, there's a huge human negative factor. And in a way, our news media is kind of moving away off it a little bit. But that's a tragedy. Uh, you know, the, the reality is there's a human tragedy. But our job as investors, for clients, those of you on this call, is to take advantage of fear and find the best valuation opportunities out there.
1: Thanks, John. Um, can you, you know, for the audience, try to quantify the opportunity you're seeing? Yeah.
2: So first, let us let's talk about what recessions do. Uh, devaluations. Typically, when you get into the early onset of res- recession fears, everyone's worried about you know, earnings for the companies, et cetera. So you shift from positive momentum to negative momentum. Everyone runs for the exits. They try to find safety, et cetera. And that causes stock markets typically to sell off between 20 and 30%. Uh, the truth is that's kind of already happened. Uh, In most of the markets, as I mentioned, Europe sold off hard uh, earlier than the United States, but then we kind of joined the the negative party. So if you think recessions cause 20 to 30 percent drops in markets, you could say most of that uh, majority, at least more than 50 percent of that drop is already discounted uh, by the market. Uh, I think that would be a pretty conservative assumption. Normally, the second part of that is where we play, which is in value because value typically has some elements of cyclicality in terms of the businesses that you're invested in maybe more related uh to the to the economy typically value underperforms just going into a recession as you anticipated value underperforms and then on the other side that that alpha shows up uh, for value as a style interestingly value this time it didn't happen that way Right? Because the, the multiples were so stretched for the market as a whole, value is actually outperformed coming into this recession. It doesn't mean it's performing well. We have many, many stocks in the value landscape that are down 30, some of them 40%. So it's not like value is, is, is doing really, really well. It's just that the market did worse this time. And I think that's mostly a valuation point. Uh, so on the point of recession, I think the good news is there, there's quite a bit discounted. But I think that begs the question, well, where are valuations? And that's what your question really is, Valerie, which is where are we in terms of uh, valuation opportunities? Uh, First of all, let me just preface this by saying we had been saying for some time that if you looked at how value trailed the broader indices globally over the last 10 years, part of that was multiples and, and what happened to multiples, basically because of low interest rates, interest rates approaching zero globally. Uh, certainly after inflation in some places, it was negative, including the United States. What happened was we had a valuation spike uh, where multiples kept expanding for a portion of the market. I like to say that in deep value, uh, we didn't get the memo that our multiples are supposed to go up and most most of the multiples for things we were buying around the world actually went down, Uh, you know, uh, certainly during COVID, they went down. So uh, interesting phenomenon. So where are we? I thought the one thing I wanted to show this audience is is how we're looking at valuations uh, between value, between the cheapest stocks in the world and the most expensive stocks in the world. The way we look at it is, what are you paying for future earnings? Now we say future, the way our models work is it's always five years from now. There's always obviously a little bit of earnings gain in that. Uh, So these are not current PE multiples. These are multiples of future cash flow and earnings you should see. Uh, for companies you know, five years from now. But when you look at that, where we are today, there's a big spread between what you're paying for the loved and the unloved. Uh, the unloved are the cheaper stocks. We call them cheap here. This would be our cheapest quintile. What we're paying today is just a little over five times the future earnings power. And if you look at the 71-year average, my point on multiples is we're actually paying a little lower multiple today than we have on average. For, for cheaper earnings over the last 71 years, which is kind of amazing, right? Because we all think of multiples being high. So the percent of time that that, that stocks are cheaper than this uh, is only 10% uh, of the time, actually if you look back over the last uh, 71 years, which is, which is interesting. Now we're going into recession and, and recession is discounted, that's the point I made earlier, and stocks are cheaper right at the onset of recession. So we should be at a cheap time and we are at a cheap time. Uh, for for our cheapest quintile. The expensive stocks, I call them the loved stocks of the world, have gotten beaten up. And everyone says, wow, you know, I should be looking for the beaten up high flyers, not the beaten up value. But that, that multiple accretion over the last 10 years was so big that despite the retrenchment, we would say, if you were looking at an estimate of earnings five years from now, for the most loved, this is the most expensive stocks, Uh, okay, so I'm picking the top quintile here, that the 71-year average is around 36 times, we're still paying more than historic average. Now, you might say that's justified by interest rates, because interest rates are still low, but 78% of the time, the expensive stocks would be uh, cheaper than this, actually, if you look back over a long-term history. So when you then say, well, the net is the gap, the spread, we would say only 3% of the time, are cheap stocks cheaper relative to the most expensive stocks. A lot of this hinges on interest rates, right? This is why on any given day, you kind of know how we're performing relative to the market, because if interest rates tick up, everyone's ah, you know, I'm scared of the high multiple stocks. Uh, And you can kind of see that in the market. But I thought I'd give you this is where we are uh, today. uh, And we would say that the spreads for what we're looking for in the cheapest stocks is pretty interesting.
1: Thanks, John. One more question for you, and then I promise we'll, we'll switch over to Allison. Yeah. So, you know, inflation right now is very much top of mind. It's a shockingly high number, just reached 9%. How long do you think it'll be with us at this level, um, and how does it affect our stocks?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting question. Obviously, we do very stock specific, industry specific research. So, at, at, a, at a company level, how inflation works its way through the system varies dramatically. Uh, from company to company. But if you stand back a bit, the whole question about inflation is, if you have spiking raw materials, for example, like energy or or materials today, uh, metals included, if you have rapidly rising raw materials, the question is, can you pass on the impact of that? Or if you're incredibly labor intensive, can you pass on the rapid cost increase in labor? In the main for value, they tend to work off of spreads, meaning versus inputs. Like think about Michelin, entire tire company owned in Europe. They have carbon black and natural rubber as big raw materials. When those go up, they typically do price up for materials. So in that pass through sense, what you'd see in the main is value type companies like Michelin are more likely to pass through inflation and get their returns back to where they were than the market on average. I'll put it the other way around. If a company doesn't price based upon inputs, meaning they just price to the value proposition of the customer, then when inflation hits, there's nothing to tell the customer about. You're already pricing it for what the utility was. You can't just go to them and say, you know, I'm going to charge you twice as much for this drug, for example. So so you know, it's 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 an interesting uh, point in terms of how things pass through historically, value outperforms during inflation periods and underperforms during uh, deflation periods. Actually, that's been part of the last ten years, and uh, or, or the last twenty years, I should say, is we had declining inflation to the point of deflation, and that's why that why the multiples went up for 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 the for the growth companies and and down for value because people were afraid. Uh, of of these value-oriented companies.
1: Thanks, John. Alison, um, it was very surprising last quarter that China was the only up market in the second quarter. So what's going on there? Is that a sign
3: of improvement? Well, it's a sign of improvement relative to where things were, right? So it, to, to get excited about the second quarter is, is a nice thing, but when you look at what's happened over the previous year plus, to Chinese equities, it's been extremely painful. You know, when you look at how emerging markets have performed relative developed markets, they're now at pretty much the cheapest relative valuation that we've seen since we launched our EM strategy. And China is a big part of that, right? Huge underperformance of the Chinese market in 2021. And to sort of sum it up, you know, two main fears. First, the sort of question of regulatory and government interference in businesses, you know, is there such a thing as private enterprise in China, you know, a real sort of existential question around the business model. Um, And then second, you know, the, the effects of COVID on China, you know, if we roll back the clock to 2020, China was the success story, you know, sort of the first in first out, you know, really got the economy moving again. But now because of China's zero COVID policy, while the rest of the world is getting moving again, you know, John even mentioning we're off visiting companies again, uh, not in China, you know, China continues with these series of lockdowns, which is extremely painful um, for businesses. So the market has done terribly. Now, in the second quarter, we got some relief. You know, it's a little bit, I think that the valuations got too cheap to ignore for people, you know, sort of despite those two big risks moving in there Um, in addition. You know, In this environment where we are moving into this fear of global recession, China is one of the few spots in the world where it looks as though there is room in the policy to lower rates to sort of continue stimulating the, the economy and doing more things in addition to monetarily, also on the fiscal side um, to help stimulate the economy. Whereas a, a lot of the rest of the world sort of has its hands tied um, effectively in terms of being able to, to push the economy forward. For us in our portfolios, China has been a huge opportunity recently. I mean, as, as everyone on the call will know, we like to go where there's controversy. And there's a lot of controversy in China these days. So we've been seeing more and more Chinese companies popping up in our first quintile. We've been slowly adding to our exposure, which has been underweight for quite some time. In fact, some of the people on the call today probably experienced Screaming and yelling at us over the last several years as, as China was outperforming and we were so underweight. Um, that said, you know, if, if we wouldn't have been owning the, the companies that were the high flyers of China at that, at that time at, anyway. But um, needless to say, it, it's been an interesting research area for us recently.
1: Thanks, Allison. John, Europe has been hit really hard. Russia invading Ukraine has had a detrimental impact. The recession is very likely here, or maybe it's still coming. How does that impact our portfolios? Are you seeing new opportunities even in the face of declining earnings?
2: Well, absolutely. In fact, in fact, it is the fear of declining earnings that, that drives stock prices down, right? So uh, the reality is the opportunities are only getting better as we sit here today. In terms of things that have already been hit, you know, that we've been picking off, you know, over the last six months, it is what you might think as emerging opportunities, good businesses where if if earnings uh, uncertainty rises, people bail out, but they're actually good businesses. You know, one of the things I like to say, going into a recession, you don't have to go running for for, for the weaklings of the market. We're trying to buy good businesses at inexpensive prices. And actually, some businesses, when you look at it, it's true that Michelin's earnings are under siege, but the truth is they're better positioned than weaker companies with respect to the ability to pass through the raw material increase, and they might actually gain share as weaker companies struggle. So the real blessing of recessions is you can buy good businesses on negative momentum of earnings, if you will, uh, because they, they're just all getting thrown out uh, and, and have big. Big declines. So, so I would say that the the more cyclical things that I've been looking at, you know, we bought buying more of a, a temporary staffing company uh, in Europe, buying uh we actually are buying the um the spin out from from Daimler, of Daimler Truck, which has a bunch of issues going on in Europe, but really a big chunk of earnings comes from the United States in the form of their Freightliner brand Truck, which serves the leading truck trucking companies. In the United States, with a great with a great value proposition, so there you have the nice opportunity to buy a European listed stock that's getting hit by European fears when actually buying a chunk of cash flow uh, in the United States. It's that type of unique opportunity where the the old expression "the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater" uh, type of opportunity. So yeah, we're really uh, seeing those opportunities now. As Allison said, those things have been appearing in China too. Right in the big slowdown. And now they're starting to appear more readily uh, in the United States because we're joining the, the ugly party, is, is the way I like to put it.
1: Thanks, Sean. Allison, um turning over to you. How will financials fare in inflation if inflation remains high and rates continue to rise?
3: Yeah. So so this is a sort of the hundred thousand dollar question at the moment and you know our portfolios uh almost across the board are pretty heavily weighted in financial so so we spend a lot of time talking about this and part of the fear here is not just inflation in itself but inflation coupled with economic weakness right because that's where you could see some pain on the credit side for financials which is you know often a source of, of significant impairment. So there's sort of the, the fears around that, um, really not inflation in and of itself, but but its effects on businesses. Um, but then on the flip side, you know, with the idea of rising rates, there there is a positive element to that as well in terms of the net interest margins of financials improving, you know, that have been so squeezed by the very low rate environment. Um, that we've lived through over the last decade and a half. So that sort of put some positive sentiment into the names. In fact, a, a few of our best performers last quarter, um, Standard Chartered um, and Keisha Bank in, in Spain, both are very um, interest rate sensitive. And so, you know, the idea of rates moving up caused those stocks to sort of already anticipate the positive momentum to their earnings and moving up on that anticipation.
1: John, turning over to you, um, with the markets collapse, some question whether it's time to head back into growth stocks. What are your thoughts on this?
2: If you just look at the math of it, what I alluded to earlier, I'll put a little more numbers on it. If you look at just the period since 2016 and the pain that deep value has been in, if you look at stock returns and you say, well, part of it comes from actual improvement in earnings, that's why stocks should go up over time. The other part is what's happening to the multiple. And if you just go back to the end of 16 until today, basically your return in the cheapest segment of the market where we play, the return is more than 100% earnings improvement. Meaning the multiples you're paying for the earnings actually are lower today than they were at the end of 16. And and that multiple contraction with this recent assault of recession fear is about a a, a 25% hit you meaning the multiple is contracted. If you back up to the same point, 2016, and you look at the most expensive part of the market, that return has been good, but it's because basically the multiples went up dramatically. As I alluded earlier, the multiples are still higher today than they were in 2016, despite the drop. So at this end point, what you have is the total return that, that you would have recorded in the stocks you own, including the drop here, right, last uh, uh, last couple of quarters, in the most expensive quintile, it's still two-thirds multiple up. Two-thirds is from the multiple being up. I would say, yeah, it's time to go back into the stocks that have the earnings to drive them forward, but not time to go into stocks where there are no earnings, because the multiple is still high. I think it's very important at any time, well, certainly to us, because we're value people, to what price are you paying for future earnings? That's our riddle. We want to underpay. I like to say grossly underpay, uh, which we see a good number of opportunities today to grossly underpay for good
1: businesses. Changing direction a bit. So, Allison, I was curious to get your thoughts on whether you think ESG engagement with management really makes a
3: difference um, and how does it help our process? We think that that is the whole key to to effective ESG investing. The conversation around ESG investing has has been basically focused, I will say in the investment community broadly of buying the quote unquote good companies. To our mind, that is really not the way that that we should be going about things. And in fact, we've taken a look at that. You know, how how well does your portfolio perform if you only buy the good companies? Do you get any enhanced performance out of that? And the answer broadly is no. Um, And what, what we found is that The most effective way to be an ESG investor in terms of having superior stock price performance and I would argue superior global (laughs) outcomes is to buy companies where the ESG is likely to improve because when that improvement comes through, that does lead to stock price outperformance. Now, how do you get that? How do you get that improvement? a big part of that to our minds is about engaging with the companies, right? Making it clear that these are important issues that shareholders care about because companies care about shareholders, you know? Um, And so for us, you know, the, the whole idea of going about ESG investing in this way, fully integrated with our philosophy and process really resonates with our overall investment philosophy, which, um, as, as all of you would know, is about investing in companies where there's pain. And we believe that that normalization will come, right? We can see that path to improvement. Same exact thing on the ESG front. So for us, we we get into relationships with the management teams from the outset of our investment process. And it's an ongoing dialogue. So whatever the path to recovery looks like, whether it's on issues that are purely financial or ESG related, we're engaging with the management team every step of the way, you know, monitoring their progress on these issues and advocating for the changes that we think need to happen. And I can think of, of countless examples in the portfolio, You know. Just one that comes to the top of the mind is, um, you know, POSCO, the Korean steel company, a few years ago, there was an issue where a trading subsidiary was involved in Uzbekistan cotton, where there was forced labor and child labor involved, right? Really red hot button issues. Um, so through the combination of shareholder advocacy and and pushing on them, as well as NGOs who you know were very active in this space, those practices were changed. So Uzbek as a country, you know now has a sort of a, a hard stop on those types of practices. But even beyond that. Posco, as a company, has, has put practices in place that really look deeper into the supply chain and making sure that you know none of these types of issues are happening uh, within that that cotton trading part of the of the trading subsidiary. So, you know, I, I think that shareholder advocacy is really critical, and you know, it touches on another issue, which is this idea of divestment versus engagement. I mean, to our mind, divestment is really not the answer because those assets will still exist. They will just be hidden from public shareholders. Right. And so then there's even less of a chance to advocate for the necessary changes.
1: Switching directions again. What impact do you see the strong US dollar having on our portfolios?
2: Yeah. Again, you know, uh on, on currency, it's company by company. But I think it's a little counterintuitive. And I think people might not, you know, understand what happens at at individual company levels. You know, I actually brought up Diamond Truck because I kind of had a you know, purpose uh, method in my madness for that. It, 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 the truth is, is that if you have a European domicile company listed in Germany or France, um, the truth is those U.S. dollar earnings, just by translation, are going up in value from a euro standpoint, right, with euro roughly a parity with the dollar. Basically, that freightliner operation is going to look really, really good uh, from a European earnings standpoint. Now, that's translation, uh, but... Nonetheless, I would say the U.S. companies will be translating back into U.S. financial statements, weaker European currency, right? So it's an uh, even translations and that tailwind to European registered companies in terms of the optics of momentum, which, of course, investors tend to worry about, uh, you know, on a short term basis. So so that's that's the overarching. But at the microeconomic level, which is where we do all our work, it's all about is this in your favor or not in your favor so for example if you have some costs in europe uh cash costs that are now cheaper and you're exporting to the united states for example the truth is you your competitive advantage has moved a little bit you know one of the big factors here is for the first time we have labor cost inflation around the world even in japan so I, I keep reminding people that we haven't had real labor cost inflation since the 1980s and, you know, almost anywhere in the world to speak of. So the truth is this is a big vector change. Well, if, you're, if your labor costs are denominated in euros or Japanese yen, those costs are lower. So if you're competing in a global dollar price market, you actually have a slight shift of competitive advantage towards Europe and towards Japan where you're dealing in know, global market that might be priced in, in dollars. So I would say net net, um, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that benefit occurring to our European uh, and Japanese companies at at the at the micro level. Hey, Valerie, I am going to go a little off script on this one, because I saw a question pop up, you know, following up on inflation, inflation and currency is related, right? There's a little bit of uh, imported inflation from from one country to another uh, as well. But the, the the number one period where value massively outperformed in inflation was actually the 73 to 82 period where oil prices spiked. If you look back at the history of outperformance of value, you would see that the highest inflation periods are the best for value outperformance. Now that was an oil shock. So obviously oil companies, if they were value companies, did really well because the oil price went up but let's just back up from that effect for a second and understand why that would be true. A couple of things. One is, uh, the inflation again was more easily passed through by companies that had to pass it through. Meaning they, they live hand to mouth on raw materials to, to their end markets, but that that's, that's just part of it. The bigger factor in that outperformance of value during the 73 to 82 period was actually the contraction of multiples as Volcker fought inflation and, and raised interest rates. So the truth is that the math of multiples really matters uh, to this equation. And during inflation periods and rising interest rates because of inflation, it's in essence a discount rate rise which forces multiples down. And the higher your multiple is, the more it falls. That's just math.
1: John, that's great. Thank you so much for weaving in some of uh, the audience's questions. Um, Just as a reminder, if anyone else um, has some questions, you can um, type them in and we're happy to address them. Um, in the meantime, I just have one more for Allison. Uh, Allison, have you seen a significant change in the universe of cheap stocks? I know at any points of volatility in the market, um, you know, people come and want to know if we're seeing new opportunities. And so are any of, are any of those fallen angels starting to screen up as cheap?
3: Yeah, yeah, great question. So when we look at the cheapest quintile in terms of you know our sort of hunting ground for new ideas, overall the composition of it hasn't changed that much. You know, it's been really dominated by highly cyclical industries for quite some time. So we see a lot of financials, we see a lot of consumer discretionary, um, in EM we see a lot of tech. That's a bit unique. We can spend some time on that if, if there's interest. Um, However, sort of on the margin, we are seeing some changes there. You know, one big change is China. So, you know, we spent some time talking about that already. But within China, it does include uh, some fallen angel companies, to use to use your term. Um, and in fact, we own some of them now. You know, Alibaba is a stock that we bought in 2021. This is a stock that a few years ago you never thought we would own. In fact, it's even in the value indices now. Right. So, so that's been a real opportunity for us. I would also say that. The, the inflationary pressures that John has spent um, some time talking about have kicked up some opportunities in industries and in geographies that we hadn't seen before. You know companies in the consumer staple space, you know companies in, in countries, growthier countries that we, that we hadn't been involved in before where they're really getting squeezed on the cost side and have yet to push that through on pricing has created some interesting uh, opportunities for us as well.
2: And I was going to say this anyway, Valerie, you know, in, 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 in a wrap up, but I'll just blurt it out here, which is we serve as very specific purpose of undervalued stocks that are in essence, priced with a low multiple. That that's what we do for our clients all over the world. That hasn't worked. If you had told me when we started the firm 27 years ago, that interest rates going to end 27 years from now, at a negative level. And you guys are in a short duration value strategy, short duration relative to the market, I would say, wow, that's not going to be good. We might as well not start the firm. But you know, the truth is we've survived and we've we've actually flourished. Uh I feel very fortunate and blessed by that. Uh, but the reality is if we're at the end of this this interest rate decline period, um, I think value definitely serves a real purpose, right? In in portfolios.
1: The next one is if inflation or rate rate expectations. Have priced in. Does picking stocks become less about growth versus value, and more about EPS
3: revisions? Yeah, you know this is a this is an interesting one, and it it really comes back to the way that we invest all the time, which is really about what do we expect from the companies that we own in terms of earnings. You know, if you look at sort of what drives the value cycle, and and where we are, and and why the positive part of the value cycle tends to last about 5 years it's because the earnings momentum takes over right so so we're already seeing some of some compression in terms of valuation spreads uh still a long way to go there but beyond that when you look at what really gives the value cycle legs it's that the cheapest companies continue to see their operating margins expand and they continue to beat earnings expectations, whereas the expensive companies don't have that dynamic. Now, to be fair, you know, in a recession, the the cheap companies are hit harder, right? They're the ones that see their operating margins collapse during the, the most painful point. And so the company managements do what company managements have to do. They cut costs, they clean up the balance sheet, they make things really, really lean. And so then when you start to see the cycle turn and the demand comes back, it's like a coiled spring in terms of what can happen with the operating margins. And that is what really powers that outperformance of the cheap stocks as we move through the cycle. Thanks, Allison. Are companies with large fixed
1: assets better positioned to navigate inflationary times than asset-like companies?
2: Yeah, I think, I think it, that gets to the core of how does pricing work and, and how does you know cash flow or earnings spread work. Um, and if you think about it, a fixed asset company uh, that has high fixed assets, you could say is capital intensive, right? Uh, and that correlation, as soon as you go there and you say the word capital intensive, you get more cyclical uh, elements, right? Because the more capital you have in your balance sheet, the more, more a volume drop of recession hurts you, right? Because you have fixed assets and fixed costs associated with those assets. So yes, inflationary periods, because you start pricing for your units and pricing for the inflation in your costs, because you have to, because your returns aren't excessive, right? You're not starting with an 80% return on capital, you're starting with a 12, and then it gets down to six, and then you, you know, the, the competition starts to fix everything. So yes, I think you would find a a good correlation between high fixed assets and inflation, relative inflation performance.
1: Thank you, John and Alison. I think that wraps up all of our questions for today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.